We have friends who decided last year to redecorate their young boy's bedroom, and the decorative theme that their mother chose was Noah's Ark. It was a very doable theme. My wife, for instance, had no problem finding a Noah's Ark shelf ornament, which we purchase as a gift for our friends. It intrigues me how easy it is to find uh, Noah's Ark themes in the stores these days. I cannot claim to be a heavy shopper by any means, but I, I see the stuff from time to time. There's a lapel pen or a bedspread or knickknacks, pictures with Noah's Ark on it. They're, they're really quite prominent if you look around. It's intriguing because our culture as a whole detests the biblical flood narrative and its implications that God is a God of judgment and a God of wrath who chose to wipe out sinful humanity, saving in His electing grace only a small remnant of people. We have no place in our collective conscience for such ideas. The biblical flood narrative stands opposed to everything our culture wants to believe about itself and wants to believe about God. And so the popularity of the ark theme in our artistic world is really ironic, although I think a little bit of art history might help us understand it. If you picked up a Bible storybook written and illustrated in the 1800s and you were told this book has one picture of the flood narrative in it, what would you expect to see? Those who've researched this issue tell us that you would expect to see something like, a picture like the ark floating in the waters and people screaming, uh, crying to get onto the ark as they were just about to die drowning. That's what you would see in the 1800s. If you picked up a children's Bible storybook today and you were told there's only one picture of the flood narrative in it, what would you expect to see? Well, you might see, possibly, the ark floating on the water, but usually, what do you see? The animals coming into the ark. There's nothing necessarily evil about that change, but it's interesting to note that the ark theme has undergone the same kind of transformation as fairy tales have suffered in our culture. Because our culture refuses to believe the implicit warning in the biblical flood narrative, Noah and his ark has been transformed into a cute, non-threatening fairy tale appropriate for decorating little boys' bedrooms or wearing as a lapel pin to the office or something like that. And speaking of artistic themes, consider the rainbow. As an artistic theme, the rainbow has suffered a number of implications in our culture, but ironically, one of the most popular today is its association with homosexual ideology. Ironically, Noah's Ark and the rainbow are symbols of God's sovereign reign over humanity. But the world takes these very themes and sucks them dry of all biblical significance. Of course, the problem's not really art. The problem is the heart. The world rejects the biblical creation account. It rejects the biblical account of the flood because man wants to see himself as autonomous. And you can't have creation and you cannot have the flood and be autonomous. The Humanist Manifesto, too, says this. Humanity to survive requires bold and daring measures. Confronted by many possible futures, we must decide which to pursue. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological sanction. Ethics stems from human need and interest. 
Man wants to believe that he is free to live as he pleases, free to choose as he wills, and free to determine his own destiny. Such thinking drives our culture, and such thinking is in absolute conflict with Genesis chapter 9 and the entire flood narrative. We'll look at Genesis 9 today, but first let's remember in Genesis chapter 6, the corruption of humanity is described. God chooses to destroy the world. In Genesis chapter 7, Moses draws out the account of the flood itself as it comes upon the earth and kills out everything that is not in the ark. In Genesis chapter 8, we then see the God of deliverance who safely delivers Noah back onto dry ground as through chapter 8, the waters are going down and life again begins. Noah worships God, as we mentioned that last week. He's delivered from this great flood. God brings him through and his response is to worship God. God responds. He's pleased with uh, this sacrifice, this great sacrifice. You notice in 8.21, Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So as we enter chapter 9, in a limited but very real sense, we have a recreated world. It's a new start for humanity. And in this concluding section of the flood, we note that God speaks. There are four speeches introduced in chapter 9. Notice chapter 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Chapter 9 and verse 8, Then God said to Noah, Chapter 9 and verse 12, and God said, chapter 9 and verse 17, so God said. Now, those so God saids could be put in different places by the, by the author, by Moses. It doesn't necessarily matter. But those God says are placed at specific locations that give us guidance through the text and draw our attention to the fact that God is speaking. He's issuing his decree. And as we note the words that God establishes, as he speaks and thereby sovereignly establishes the moorings of human culture with his words, it is uncanny how consistently our world opposes what we read in these words of God. And I think you'll pick that up as we go through today. The Humanist Manifesto and the Average Lost Soul of our day believes that human culture is regulated by human will. But what we learn in Genesis 9, first of all, is that God's decrees regulate culture. God's word, God's decrees regulate culture. And we find that in three spheres of relationship. And as you go through, you'll be able to put together examples from your own world and from our culture where man is so lost, so far away from these decrees of God. But we want to center our minds on them and think the thoughts of God. The first relationship is man's relationship to the earth in verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This blessing draws us back to what? Obviously back to chapter 1 and verse 28, where God originally blesses man and says, Be fruitful and fill the earth. As with the first couple, as with Adam and Eve, so now with Noah and his sons and their and his sons' wives, procreation is God's blessed intention. 
I think the subjugation of the planet is, is of course, included here and, and assumed. But the focus is on the fact that God graciously decrees that his people are to populate the entire earth. Noah, says God, I mean, think of where he's at. He's just gotten off of the ark just recently. The animals are beginning to scatter. And God says to Noah, you have an empty planet before you. Fill it with people. But because man is morally corrupt, because he refuses to trust God's decrees, we have replaced the joy in this blessing with fear. Rather than gladly and humbly procreate, humanity constantly worries itself sick over the possibility of overpopulation. It is a fear which refuses to die. We might ignorantly assume that this fear is modern, stemming from the problems generated by overpopulated cities. But even before this account was written, before God revealed his authoritative word to Moses, there was a Mesopotamian flood myth, the Atrocis Epic, and it said that the gods of the ancient world were no longer able to sleep because there were so many people on earth. And so they convened a council, these gods, and said, we've got to get some rest up here in the heavens, and so we will destroy the people on the earth with a flood. And they did so. That's this account that explains how all of this happened. They got together then after the flood, and as some people got off of an ark, got off of a ship, and got onto dry ground, they said, well, we've got to figure out now how we're going to keep this from happening again. And they came up with two ideas. Number one, they would curse some of the women with infertility, and they would visit some of the infants that were born with death. They would take them in death and in infancy. This is an ancient account. I mean, it was written down before the biblical account. The ancient as well as the contemporary pagan worldview sees overpopulation of the earth as a lurking and evil potential. And the result is a tainted view of the blessing of procreation with its attendant evils when you, when you look against the way of God. We have, for instance, what's happening in China today. Uh, there is the uh, a one child per family rule and it has, it's leading to what? It's leading to infanticide. It's leading to in abortion. There are, there are girls who are actually born. When it's determined they're a girl, they're left to die. They're killed. And of course, abortion's taking place routinely as uh, subsequent children are born. We have unprecedented numbers of single men in China with no possibility of marriage. And what it's leading to, it's very interesting to watch this culturally, but what it's leading to is great levels of homosexuality in China uh, and a joyless society. I read some time ago the account of a young man who dressed and acted like a woman in public because there was no opportunity for him for marriage. He knew only men in his life, uh, so many Families are having just one boy in their home, and he, had, he, he saw absolutely no potential for marriage. And so he acted like a woman, and, and the joyless, godless, wicked uh, lifestyle that that man led. And what does America do as we stand back and watch China? We send delegates to praise them for the liberation of women. Delegates from our country, high up delegates that go over there to China and say you're doing such a wonderful job and mainly what they mean is you're allowing abortion and we like that idea. 
China doesn't have an overpopulation problem. China has a theology problem. There are difficulties that China faces with great population, but really what it boils down to is a theology problem, and so does America. The biblical account is diametrically opposed to this fallen worldview. With freedom of conscience and full confidence, God has made it our glad privilege to procreate with no fear of overpopulation. Yes, there are unique problems in large cities. We don't set that aside. Yes, our earth shows signs of wear and tear. But God has decreed that we fill the earth with no fear. The fear of overpopulation comes from worldly people who crack under the pressure of trying to play God, trying to predict the future without an assuring word from the Creator, trying to say that if this pattern continues, this is what's going to happen. Well, we don't have to know what's going to happen in the future on this issue. God has said to Noah, through Noah to all of us, fill the earth and subdue it as the world tries to predict the future without that assuring word of god we sense fear don't we listen to the humanist manifesto too again humanity to survive requires bold and daring measures no it doesn't we need to use wisdom to humbly subdue the earth to god's glory to have sex within the confines of god's will but for humanity to survive, all we really need to do is have babies. It's that simple. We just trust God. We can trust God to take care of his planet. We won't overpopulate it. Now, my comments have nothing to do with your individual family as such. We're looking at the broad picture, at the big idea, and uh, this is a fear that's generated from a culture that is trying to play God. We listen to his decree it leads to a certain lifestyle, and it leads to the attendant joy of that lifestyle. Second relationship. God's decree regulates culture and the relationship of our, our relationship to the planet and to filling it. Secondly, man's relationship to the animals. Verse 2. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. Man's relationship to the animals will be marked by fear and food. If we could just use those two words. Adam apparently exercised a powerful authority to which the first animals voluntarily submitted. We don't understand such a world. But this kind of relationship with the animals will be restored in the millennium, according to Isaiah chapter 11, where there will once again be a willing submission and no fear between animal and, and man, but that's not the case. Apparently there's a change that took place that was initiated with Noah in this post-flood world. The submission of the animals to man was now not obtained willingly, but obtained through a pervasive fear that is instilled in animals naturally. Uh, I don't know, maybe the animals were afraid if they didn't run from Noah, they were going to have to go back on that ark or something. But somehow God instilled a fear and they ran. They, they took off. They were afraid of man. And we notice that this fear uh, does not include domesticated animals. Do you see there the phrases that are used? The beasts of the earth, the birds of the air, every creature that moves along the ground, the fish of the sea. We've seen these same phrases used in Genesis chapter 1 in creation. We've seen it throughout in the saving of the animals. But one phrase is, is noticeably missing. 
And that's the domesticated type of animal. That Hebrew phrase is not here. So apparently it doesn't refer to animals, let's just say, such as a dog, uh, that, that there would be a fear uh, in, in a pervasive sense, or maybe such as a cow or something. There is a fear there, but the same kind of fear is not the case as he's speaking of here. Um, we should always also understand that this inherent fear does not mean that wild animals will always run away from people, just like some people. Uh, fear will drive some animals to attack rather than to retreat. And I have uh, have met, speaking of dogs, a number of them that have responded to me that way. They don't, they're afraid of you, but they don't run. They come at you. But it's a fear that is uh, between man and animal. God's word establishes man now, and the point of it all is that man is the ruler over the animal world. It says there, do you see that phrase at the end of verse 2? They are given into your hand. We are commanded by God to exercise honorable stewardship over the animals of the earth. It means don't kick your dog unless he needs it. Animals are to be treated with dignity as creatures made by and protected by our God. But animals are to be subjected to the rights and purposes of man. Into your hand means that we are given by the decree of God the right of life or death over the animals. By rejecting God's decrees, mankind plays the fool over and over again, and divine structure is lost. On the one hand are those who exploit and harm animals with selfish intent. On the other hand are those who place the interest of animals above the interests of man. When the, uh, as illustration, when the infamous Exxon Valdez spilled crude oil on the Alaskan shore some years ago, $80,000 was spent on every single otter that was saved out of that compromised environment. 80000 ahead. Um, after one such successful rescue, it was determined that a little noise needed to be made about this $80,000 otter that was going to be released into the sea in one community. And so they all got together on the shore, and uh, they got the high school band out there to play, and the band's playing as this otter is released wonderfully into the sea, and everybody's rejoicing. Well, Providence intervened in this lunacy, and a killer whale sw swimming out in the ocean came by and in full view of everyone had an $80,000 otter sandwich. <laughs> the audience, of course, was horrified, as they should have been. I don't know if the band quit playing or what happened there, but <laughs> brought an end to the party. You know, when people refuse to anchor their actions to God's decrees and rest in His divine wisdom, they lose touch with reality and all sorts of lunacy can follow. According to Romans 1, when you reject the word of your Creator, you are on the fast road to worshiping the creature. And I wonder how many people could have been fed that needed food with $80,000. That's what happens when we get out of touch with our God and with His decree. 
Verse 3 discusses the issue of food. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. In Genesis 1.30, God spoke concerning man and the animals and said, I give every green plant for food. So in, according to Genesis 1, in the original creation, they all were vegetarians, the animals as well as the people. Now in this new world, which had emerged from the violent turbulence of the flood, animal flesh was granted to man for enjoyment and sustenance. It may be necessary to some degree, uh, for the sustaining of human life in this new and much more harsh environment for uh, meat to be consumed. Obviously, Noah would have to exercise good stewardship of the animals, making sure um, not to eat those that were unclean at this point, as there were only two. They needed time to procreate. But with seven pairs of each clean animal, uh, meat became the staple of Noah's diet. We are obligated, it says, to exercise honorable stewardship over the animals of our world. But according to God's decree, we are given full right to kill and to eat animals. Those who see animal consumption as morally evil reject the express word of the Creator. Now, I'm not going to quibble over somebody who wants to get rid of meat in their diet personally as a personal decision for dietary reasons. That's between you and the Lord, and that's fine if, if God leads you to do that. But for those who say that it is morally evil to kill an animal, they are out of touch with what God has said. We are to have an appropriate level of compassion for animals. Animals are not to be tortured. They are not to be arbitrarily killed. But our attitude toward animals must include the willingness to kill an animal as appropriate. If their heart is right with God, the Lord is pleased with hunters. He smiles on catch-and-keep fishers. He's honored by godly beef and hog growers. Steak is a good thing. We can eat it with joy. God's decree regulates culture. Man's relationship to the earth, fill it. Man's relationship to the animals, there's a fear there, and they are for our food. Thirdly, man's relationship to life, beginning with verse 4. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. There's a double negation here in the Hebrew. It's a strong statement. You will not eat meat that has blood in it. That is, I think the meaning of here is, is raw meat. Uh, meat that's not been properly cut and properly um, cooked in whatever way. How did God restrict the diet of Adam and Eve? There was a universal permission, wasn't there? You can eat of all the trees, all of the plants, except for one. And we have that same kind of uh, reflection here. You can have all of the animals, but there's one stipulation. You will not eat raw meat with blood in it. God equated blood with life. Blood transports chemicals from the air and the food to the flesh, renewing and sustaining it. Blood flow is also necessary to sustain the functions of the brain. So if blood is flowing inside of us, we are still living to one degree or another. When blood stops flowing inside of us, or when blood begins to be flowing on the outside of our body, we are in the process of dying or we're dead. And so God designates the blood as the symbol of physical life. I think the whole point of this restriction on blood is to say we must show proper reverence for life as a sacred thing. 
of which God alone has the disposal and for the use of which man is dependent on the permission of God, as one has put it. Verse 5, we read on, And for your life, blood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Man can choose to honorably take the life of an animal, but animals cannot take the life of a man. That is a very significant point, and it shows the structure, it shows the, the, the world order that God has decreed. Interesting, even animals are held account to account for the death of a human being. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 28, the, the gore, if, if an ox gores someone and that person dies, what's to happen to that ox? That ox is to be stoned. You know that never is murder uh, punishable by stoning in the Old Covenant. Stoning was always reserved for insurrection. And so there is a sense in which an ox that gores a human being to death has, has been involved in something of a rebellion and is to be stoned. They have, he has broken the creative order. Man is over animal. Animals are to fear man. Man is to kill animals. Animals are not to kill man. Now, when it comes to man-killing man, when it comes to murderers, verse 6 addresses that issue. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. What's the meaning? We just take it at face value. Always a good idea with the scripture. Just take it for what it says. It says, first of all, the crime is what? Murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man. The response, capital punishment. By man shall his blood be shed. That is, the murderer's blood will be shed by a human being. The rationale, what is it, verse 6? For in the image of God, man has been created. Since man is created in the image of God, I think that's the meaning, since we are created in the image of God, murder is a high-handed sin which can only be punished properly by the death of the killer. Think of the context of Genesis to this point. We have had Cain killing his brother Abel. He was not killed. As a matter of fact, he was in that aspect of God's reign, protected by God. We have Lamech speaking of killing one who has hurt him, taking vengeance in his own hands. But Lamech is not killed. But God says now there will be in here the establishment, a human mechanism that will be developed in dealing with crime. God institutes capital punishment. What is the rationale for capital punishment? Once again, fallen humanity makes a mess out of the topic by trying to reason through it. Some argue that capital punishment constitutes a second murder. Most opponents argue that capital punishment doesn't work. It fails to deter crime and the like. I'll, neither of these arguments is really sound, but it really doesn't make any difference. God said it, you do it. That's the point. Uh, it's not murder. It's not a second murder because God has sanctioned it. It is whether or not, I mean, we can argue whether or not it works because we don't practice it very well. But that's not the point. We're not to play God. We're to do what God says. The raging debate just evidences that man sees himself as God. This is not a matter of debate, but of obedience. But separated from God, our culture tosses and turns on the seas of confusion. Ever debating, never able to conclude. Now we have to note here that it's only murder, because God sanctions the executioner. You don't 
somebody commits murder, the executioner could kill that person, then somebody kills the executioner, and pretty soon there's nobody standing on earth. That's, that's foolishness. It's not a second murder. He sanctions the executioner, and God sanctions, in the, particularly in the Old Testament, he sanctions war at times in the right way. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God protected from execution those who committed manslaughter. God laid out in his law that they would be protected even though they killed someone, but it was not with intent. So what we have here is murder. Someone who with premeditation kills someone else, the divine decree is that that person's life is to be taken. Isn't that harsh? It is harsh. So is murder. It's a violent, wicked crime against the image of God. It's a high-handed sin against the Creator. When we kill another human being, we shake our fist in the face of God. It demands a harsh and difficult punishment. At this point, in our culture at least, it seems that we are somewhat following verse 5. If an animal kills someone, that animal's put to death. But I wonder how long that'll last. As we begin more and more to worship animals and less and less to respect the image of God and man, as we do not follow through on the issue of capital punishment, I don't know how long it will be. And pretty soon we'll be hearing about lawsuits going ongoing about leaving an animal alive that's, that's maimed or, or killed someone. We get so far off of the God's decrees, we get lost. We're like two ships in a storm. The believers anchored to the decree of God established at the outset of human culture's expansion on earth. The world adrift on the wild seas of relativity without any moorings. Hear it again in the Humanist Manifesto. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological sanction. Ethics stems from human need and interest. And it is that very philosophy which gives rise to the world's view of overpopulation, animal worship, environmental worship, vegetarianism, the evil of capital punishment, and these various and related topics. We live in the same world. We're facing the same circumstances, but by God's grace, we need to anchor our beliefs to the rock of truth and not be influenced by a culture that would shame us, that would ridicule us, our focus needs to be not in a harsh way in resistance to our world, but our focus needs to be upon the truth of God to honor the Creator and the decrees that He's laid out. Verse 7 then is kind of an end of a parenthesis. This verse seems like a, a really a literary parenthesis repeating verse 1. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. We see again the emphasis of population to fill the earth. God's decrees regulate culture. Now we have a, a little bit of text to go through here, but far fewer comments. If you'll follow through with me, I'd like to get us through verse 17 uh, because this brings to close the flood narrative, and it follows with the second principle. God's decrees regulate culture. Secondly, God's promise preserves life. That is so important to remember. God's promise preserves life. First of all, we see the provision of the covenant that God establishes with Moses. The provisions beginning in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. 
God has told Noah what Noah is to do in verses 1 through 7. And now God tells Noah what God is going to do. Specifically, God will establish his covenant. That is a promise. He will make an agreement with Noah. This covenant is prophesied in chapter 6 and verse 18. Before Noah entered the ark, now the time had come. God gives to Noah his word and to his sons and their descendants. And that means you and me. There isn't anybody here who isn't a child of Noah. We're all children of Noah. He gives to us this promise and to every animal as well. Verse 10. What is the promise? Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This covenant points to certainly a universal flood, doesn't it? There have been many local floods since this promise. If the flood of Genesis is a local flood, then God lied. He said there'll never be a flood again to destroy the earth like this flood. It was a universal flood, but that will never happen again. Either this was a universal flood with all the attendant implications or God has failed his promise. Verse 10, also it's interesting, the covenant is directed to the animals who came out of the ark. That makes no sense if we're dealing with a local flood. The only animals on the earth today are animals that were in the ark. The only people on the earth today were people that are descendants from those that came off the ark. We're all descendants of one family, and all of the animals are descendants of the same animals that were on the ark. So this covenant points to a uh, promise on the word, uh, by the word of God to us. It is a covenant, you notice there, that is unilateral. That is, animals can't submit to a covenant. They can't sign the dotted line. This is a covenant that God says and decrees uh, to those involved. In other words, it's a promise from God which He will honor no matter what man does. Just look around our culture, just look around our world, and it's obvious that this does not depend upon us. It depends on the decree of God. God does not promise that there will never be a local flood doesn't promise there won't be natural disasters. He does not say there will never again be a destruction on earth. There will be in the future. But he does say that there will never be, earth will never be placed again in a watery tomb. We will have seasons, as chapter 8 and verse 22 says. We will have seasons that are ongoing as long as the earth endures. So there's a destruction, there's a burning, there's an end, really a purification of the earth that God predicts in the future. It's not going to wipe everyone off, it's just going to, no one will be on it at the time, it will be destroyed. But people will again walk on earth, I believe, in the the, uh, final analysis in, in eternity. But until then, we're going to have seasons, one after another, day after night, until the earth ends until it is destroyed by fire. Once again, as man tries to play God instead of trusting God, he's constantly fearing the demise of the world as we know it. There will be one final judgment, but no one living on planet Earth today will be part of that judgment, not one of us. Yes, there may be a wide-scale, there may be wide-scale disease. Uh, There may be a great natural disaster that does take off many people off the face of the earth. There may be a nuclear war. The Bible's not saying that can't happen. But God has promised that the world will continue as we know it long after we leave this earth. 
So a nuclear war will not destroy life on earth. A meteorite shower will never destroy life on earth. And the earth will continue to rotate around the sun as it does today. God said it. He promised it. See what we mean then by the idea that we are safe on the basis of the promise of God, not human ingenuity. There's an article I've often referred to by a scientist who proposes how we are going to create our own sun with subatomic energy when the sun dies. Well, he's got a PhD in planetary astronomy. He's a distinguished scientist, but he's a fool. Human ingenuity never has and never will sustain the sun. God has promised that he will do that, and he will. Man's power does not preserve life. God's promise preserves life. That's the only reason that we breathe. The only reason that we live is the grace and the promise of God. No matter the presence of thermonuclear power, germ warfare, the decay and pollution of the universe, tomorrow will come because God has decreed that it will come. That's the provision of the covenant. Then we see in verse 12 the sign of the covenant. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. And you're going to notice here that God keeps repeating himself right through 17 because he's making it very sure that there is this sign, that it is a promise that is guaranteed. The sign is, uh, verse 13, the rainbow. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Uh, There were no rainbows in the pre-flood world because there was no rain, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5. Now that the watery canopy has collapsed in the flood, now that the hydraulic system has changed to include rain in the skies, uh, sun goes through these droplets of water in the the sky and we have rainbows. Uh, God then repeats himself from 14 and following, whenever I bring clouds over the earth, And the rainbow appears in the clouds. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. You know, as hard rain pelts down on the ground, it's always a reminder of our vulnerability. We cannot start the rain And we cannot stop the rain. If it were not for the grace of God, we'd be doomed by rain. But we never are. We've come to just count on it stopping. Matter of fact, we kind of grump and complain if it doesn't stop soon enough for us. Because we know it's going to. We have no fear that it's going to keep on raining forever and ever. Even the secular world doesn't have any fear of that because there's not enough water in the sky to flood the earth as there was originally. But we need to remember that with every stoppage of rain, there is again an illustration of the grace of God. We can't stop the rain, but he can and he does because he promised to do so. The rain always stops, and as those waters let up, we sometimes see a rainbow which reminds us of God's promise. Now it's usually assumed that the rainbow is put in the sky for our benefit, that we would remember the mercy of God, but it's interesting, the text really doesn't point to it that way. It says, I will put my rainbow in the sky so that I remember my promise. As if God could forget, obviously he can't, but uh, in, in some true sense, the rainbow is placed in the sky for him to remember his covenant. And certainly it does remind us of his promise to protect us. He concludes with verse 17 by speaking again. So God said, Noah, get it. 
I've just been saying it and saying it and saying it. Get it again. This is the sign of the covenant I, will, I have established between me and all life on the earth. The rainbow is the sign of that covenant. And so we see that God, as Noah, is now ready to begin to uh, fill the earth, that he and his descendants, as life has now begun anew on this side of the flood, we see that it is God's decree that regulates life. Did you, do, you, do you connect with that back to Genesis 1? Remember that? Looking back at Genesis 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2, we said that God is the author of human ethics. It is His Word that determines what is right and wrong. Once again, on this recreated, quote-unquote, recreated earth, God's decree regulates human life. And secondly, God's promise preserves life. Looking at that first idea, ethics and moral values are not humanly derived. They are not situational. They're based upon the Word of God. And anyone who tries to live differently will suffer the pain of human folly. There isn't one of us here, I don't think, that's completely isolated from our world that focuses upon such situational ethic establishment. Those of you who are in school, uh, if you're in a public school, you are in a place where people are trying to communicate to you, somebody there is trying to communicate to you that you are the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. That's not true. Always learn to discern. There is the decree of God. We can rest. We can be at peace. What God says is right. We are to follow it. It's the same thing at work. As people press us to operate in a certain way, to use a certain form of ethics, it's always, as the world presents, it's situational. It's always meant to gain the biggest dollar. It might be meant in some ways to look good to other people, but it's always geared simply to what we think is right now. According to our view, we need to learn to think it is God's decree that gives us human ethics. And that second idea it is God's promise that preserves life. The survival of the human race on planet Earth does not depend upon bold and daring human ingenuity. We are called to faithfully exercise our stewardship of this planet, but our existence on this planet owes its security to the promise of God. If we really get a hold of that truth, I live every day. The sun comes up and goes down. We rotate around it. If we get a real sense of this whole universe in the hand of a protecting God, it will affect our life. It will affect the way we interpret life, the way that we live. I remember, many of you have heard the story, uh, when we were building this building, we had gone through as a church, and uh, obviously a very difficult time of our experience, not having a, a place uh, to call our own, and uh, trying to find location. We found one here, uh, found a, this building. We started to build this out, and I remember I'd work half the day here on Saturdays with a hammer, and then I'd drive across town to our rented office, and uh, sometimes there was always that temptation through fatigue and uh, all of the concerns going on. Are we going to make it? Is God there? Does he see what we're going through? I remember one day there was a, it was a, uh, a rainstorm, and as I was driving across town back on 13 East, there was just a massive rainbow in the sky. 
And I had a lot to do to finish up on studies, but I just took a little ride and parked and looked at it for a while. And I'll never forget that experience. Because I looked at that rainbow. I saw it as Revelation reveals it, that that's God's rainbow. He put it there. Against the backdrop of the rain clouds which once destroyed the earth, there is the promise that God is in absolute control of his universe. If he is in control of the entire universe, he's obviously very much in control of my life. I live on the authority of the promise of the grace of God. And I think that's the whole point here for us. We live in an unpredictable, dangerous, fallen world, and it often proves to be a rough ride. But there's an ark that landed on the mountains of Ararat, and there are routinely rainbows in the sky. These symbols remind us that God sees and God controls our destiny. His mercy permeates every day in this fallen world. That is true of the universe as a whole, and it is true of our lives as his people. What we need to do from time to time is to look into the skies and see the, re the rainbow and remember, I live on the promise of God. Part of that promise to his people is that there awaits us a home in heaven. If you don't know that you're headed there, there's no rainbow that's going to bring you comfort. Only God can do that. But there is a home in heaven for you as you come through that narrow door who is Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection from the dead that he accomplished. That's where our hope is and that's where our destiny is. We thank you, Father, that through Jesus Christ we can claim that destiny.